It's all about you, Jesus. And that's the purpose, that's the incentive, that's the reason behind the series that we began last week. Making it all about Jesus Christ. Making our lives be all about Him. Making the choices we make all about Him. Making the way we live all about Him. And that's not easy to do today. Because as we endeavor to do that, we find ourselves every day colliding with the culture around us. Last week, we saw how we got from the founding fathers and statements like this nation was built not by religionists, by Christians, for the purpose of spreading Christianity to the point today where people want to get rid of Christianity, stamp it out of the public arena, and make it something that is, is derogatory in our culture today. That's really what we're up against. We are up against two opposing worldviews. In my lifetime, I've seen a radical change of these viewpoints. In the last 60 years, it has been amazing where culture has gone. Now, many who are of the postmodern generation, this is your only cultural experience, understand this, that your point of reference will continue to change as ours has. And understand that we're not going to, unless something amazing happens, we are not going to become closer to God's word and his standards. We are going to continue to drift further and further away. And what we have to decide in this series is whether we are going to actually live what we just sang, that it's all about you, Jesus, or we are going to allow to have these cultural influences continue to pull us inch by inch further away from that which God has revealed in his word. Today, we're going to talk about how culture has collided with marriage. How culture has collided with marriage. In the creative description in the book of Genesis, we get a snapshot of the tenderheartedness of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. God finished creating everything he was going to create, including Adam. And he looked back and he said, this is really, really good. There was no sin in the world. Everything was just as God designed it to be. And yet, when God took one more look, God saw a flaw. God saw something in his creative work that was incomplete. It's recorded in Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Do you see the tenderness of God here? I mean, God could have ordained in his creative work that Adam would have been fulfilled just with the animals. Or God could have created some other men. I mean, he created man from the dust of the ground, right? There was plenty of dust laying around. He could have created four guys who could have had a foursome, played golf in the garden. He could have created 18 guys, could have had a base, couple of baseball teams. He could have created 44 guys, had football teams, both in an offensive and a defensive side. He could have thrown in a few more guys, and they could have had officials, and, and, and they could have coaches and all that kind of thing. He could have had it so man lived with, with man and the animals, and we were spent all the time pulling each other's fingers and telling stories. It would have been... 
God could have made it that way. Get this. The Bible even says that God used to come down in the cool of the day and have fellowship with man. Man was even exposed to God's physical presence. And yet even with that, God looked at man and he said something very important is missing. And so I'm going to create for man what the animal kingdom could never provide for him. I'm going to create for man something he could never experience with his buddies. I'm going to create for man even something that is so special that even my presence cannot fulfill this need in him. And so God, as the pinnacle of all his creation, creates woman, not from the dust of the ground, but from the rib of man, from under his arm to be protected by him, from his side to walk equally with him, from his very flesh to become one with him. And so God, not man, God, not society, God, not culture, instituted the most wonderful human experience of all creation, and that was the union of a man and a woman. And God goes on to say in Genesis chapter 2.24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. He says, so strong is this need going to be in both man and in woman that they are going to very willingly leave that environment in which they were raised, which they were loved, which they were nourished, which they were cared for. Even that intimate love that exists between a mother and her child. So great is the need for a man and a woman to come together so that they can fulfill each other. That that would be the common human experience. But notice God says, the two will become one. That is God's ideal for marriage. That marriage is a lifetime commitment. It is a lifetime contract. That was God's ideal before man fell into sin. And it is his ideal after man has fallen into sin. That will never change. That is God's ideal for the marriage institution. Now, this was challenged in Jesus' day. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? See, the culture of their day had kind of got to where the culture of our day is, and divorce was rampant in their society. And so they come to test Jesus. In front of people, of course, they come to test him to see if he'll side with culture, the popular view, or whether he would revert back to what his father had established. Well, we know what the answer to that's going to be. Jesus, without hesitation, he says, haven't you read? This is kind of comical to me. He's talking to the religious leaders. He said, you don't know the Bible? You don't understand scripture? He said, haven't you read? God's made this very clear. He says that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
Jesus reinforced the original ideal. Now, fast forward through the modern period and the postmodern period. All that has changed. Darwinism and evolution has come and taken such a death grip in society as we looked at last week that now the theory of evolution is accepted as scientific fact and the fact of creation is projected as fictitious. And so all the things that God said during creation, everything that God created is also fictitious. See, remember that, that today secularism ha- has brought in this idea that all motives derived from the Christian religion are worthless. And that would include what God has said about marriage. Contemporary culture has influenced marriage in many ways. But one of the most significant and dramatic ways that contemporary cultures has impacted marriage is in the disillusion of marriage, in divorce. Now, let me state right now that I realize many of you here today, maybe many is an exaggeration, but I know a number of you here today have personally felt the sting of divorce in your life. You've gone through that experience. You, yourself, are either a victim of our culture or circumstances in your life had grown so dire that your relationship could not survive them. And for you, let let me assure you and let me affirm that God loves you so much. And God doesn't hate you because of what happened. And God hasn't rejected you because of what happened. And God doesn't look down at you because of what happened. And let me say also, that as your pastor, I love you. And I am so sorry that you have had to endure the pain of that life experience. And I will affirm that in my experience, it is the most painful experience that a person can go through. I have had the unfortunate obligation in my ministry to go knock on the door of a mom and dad, knock on the door of a spouse and proclaim to that person, your loved one's not coming home ever again. They've been killed in a terrible accident or they were killed in work or they were killed in battle. I've had the unenviable obligation of going and sitting down with, with young people in the prime of their lives And looking into their eyes and saying, I have some very disturbing news for you. Your HIV test has come back positive this time. You have been infected with the AIDS virus. I've had the unenviable experience of sitting with a person at the doctor's office when the doctor reveals the results of their tests and tells them, I'm sorry. You have a terminal disease. There's nothing we can do for you. But let me tell you something. In all of those scenarios, I have not witnessed the depth of emotional pain as great as I have with people who have been the victims of divorce. And for those of you 
who have been challenged with that, receive the love of Florida Bible Church. Receive the love of God. And know that we love you as our brothers and sisters. Today, perhaps you may identify some reasons that your relationship ended the way it did. But what we were looking today at is when we look at this impact on marriage today, we are doing it from the perspective as this is what God says, this is what culture says, you have to make a decision. And the decision you make is going to have consequences on your life experience. After World War II, as we learned last week, secularism just took off. This whole idea of just jettison all that Christianity stuff, jettison all that Bible stuff that was shoved down your throat as a little child, it isn't relevant today. It has no place in society. Until the 1960s, understand that divorce was relatively rare. Now, I grew up during this time, and, and let me try to, 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 to kind of remind those of you who grew up the same time I did and, 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 and kind of inform those of you from younger generations how drastic the change is from those days to today. Stella, my wife, was a cheerleader in high school. In her sophomore year, her mother got a divorce. Stella was called into the principal's office of the school, and she was advised by the principal that she could no longer serve on the cheerleading squad because the school could not be represented by the child of a divorcee. Now, you can't imagine that happening today. And I'm certainly not validating that that was the proper course of action. But understand, that was the culture of the day. There was tremendous social pressure. There was tremendous ecclesiastic pressure, church pressure, to stay in your relationship. Divorce was almost unheard of. I remember the first family in the neighborhood I grew up in who suffered a divorce. I remember how it scandalized the neighborhood, how we were traumatized, even as children, that such a thing could happen. That's where we were just 60 years ago, just 50-some years ago. 1960, everything started changing. By 1962, there were 400,000 divorces in the United States of America. That had tripled by 1981 to be 1.2 million. Today, 46% of couples married just 25 years ago are divorced now. And the divorce rate continues to climb because of the cultural impact on the institution of marriage. The rapid rise in divorce can primarily be attributed to two cultural factors. That's what I want to share with you. There's a lot of other things that impact it, but I'm just going to pull out because of time, two that I think have dramatically impacted the institution of marriage. Got us from where we were to where we are today. The first is attitude. The whole attitude about marriage, the whole attitude about what God instituted as marriage began to change dramatically. In fact, today, David Noble, who wrote the book Understanding of the Times, says this. Many followers of postmodern sociology consider marriage the greatest of evils. We've gone from the most wonderful thing that God had ever created for mankind to now contemporary culture is looking at that institution as possibly one of the greatest evils in our society today. Now, there have been a lot of factors that got us there. 
I think two of them are worthy of highlighting. One was the women's liberation movement, women's right movement. Again, this grew in the turbulence of the 60s. Now understand, there were a lot of legitimate uh, things of inequality that needed to be addressed in our society when it came to women. But the fact that the women's right movement was birthed in a time when there was so much social turmoil during the Vietnam era, and that country was so angry, this whole movement became a mirror of that anger and became a very angry movement. It started... Sue Bowen, a probe ministry, says, Modern-day feminism got its major start when Betty Friedan wrote her landmark book, The Feminine Mystique, in which she coined the phrase, The Housewife Laws, to describe millions of unfulfilled women. Now, she goes on, Betty Friedan looked at unhappy, unfulfilled women and diagnosed the problem as patriarchy. And what is that? If women are unhappy, the reason is that men are in charge. The reason women are so unhappy is because they live in a male-dominated society. Now, granted, we men always have to accept a load of the guilt in any relationship that goes sour. But think about it. She narrowed it down to the fact that men led the society and women were unhappy because of men. Now, think about these times. Here we got thousands of GIs coming back from World War II, had just witnessed some of the most horrific scenes ever known to mankind. When a GI came back from the war, a letter preceded them from the War Department warning families not to go into their bedroom and shake them to wake them up. Because they were likely to, to wake out of a startle and maybe even a dream of, of reliving the war and jump up and, and do bodily harm or even kill that person. In other words, these guys were coming back psychologically bruised and emotionally bruised. And they're now trying to reintegrate themselves into normal life. Can you imagine the struggles? Even today, 60 years after the war, when you talk to some of these veterans, they begin immediately to cry because, because the horror of that war is so deeply ingrained in them and has changed them so much. Added to that, all these thousands of GIs come back, and what's the first thing they do? They get married, because they all want the American dream. And immediately they begin having children. Have you ever heard of the baby boomer generation? Well, that came from the GIs coming back and all getting married at one time and having babies. Well, any of us who have ever had children understand that children do not bring harmony into a relationship. And that's what happened. But it got twisted and distorted by a misplaced movement that said, no, the reason everything is in such chaos is because of men. Now, the church came under attack by this movement, especially because the church was seen as one or the primary source of women's unhappiness because the church kept women enslaved to the domination of men. With such passages as Ephesians 5, 22 through 23, Wives, submit yourself to the husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is Savior. This is what's keeping women enslaved. This is what's keeping women repressed. This is what's doing it. It's those men, and the churches are the ones, and that Christian religion is the religion that keeps women enslaved, keeps them in an inferior position. When they would cite the Bible, they'd prefer 
Passages like Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So even your Bible says what we say is true. Of course, it was a misinterpretation, a misapplication of the passage. The passage is not talking about equality socially or politically. It's talking about treating people in a condescending manner as their superior. Feminist Sue Boland says started out trying to rectify this problem by first trying to prove that women were as good as men. Then they decided that women were better than men. Then they ended up trying to erase the lines of distinction between men and women altogether. You see an evolution even in the feminist thought. Men are no better than women. In fact, women are better than men to the fact that, hey, there's really no difference other than biologically difference between men and women. Now, the problem is, as we all know, God did not create us the same. Women are not like men. Men are not like women. And you see that from infancy. You see that from toddlers playing on the playground. You, you see the difference in personality and the difference in gender from the very formation of life. We are not the same. Men have our nothing box we like to stay in. We take on one thing at a time. As Mark Gunger says, women's brains go, they're all connected. We can't understand that. It's just we're different. But when this movement tried to make everybody the same, what happened is the gender roles were greatly confused. And there was an effort to feminize men, to have your softer side, your feminine side. And women, on the other hand, were told that the only real achievement in life is what you succeed at doing in business. And, and kind of assuming that those who chose to be mothers and raise families, that was not a life-fulfilling vocation. And so everything got confused. Problem is today, men have so lost their way that women don't like what they have now. Because women were taken from the rib of man under the arm to be protected. By his side, to be led. From his flesh, to be one. And now we got all these mamsy-pamsy men going around who don't know who they really are anymore. And we got a bunch of women going around who don't know what they are anymore. And all of this has invaded the institution of marriage and made it crazy in our society. Sue concludes, remember that famous feminist slogan that appeared on everything from bumper stickers to T-shirts to notepads? A woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. The message was clear. Women don't need men who are inferior anyhow. Now, this is the attitude that increasingly began to invade culture and invade relationships. And this very attitude began to change the way women especially looked at the institution of marriage and changed the dynamics of the original created ideals for marriage. Now, another attitude that grew in the modern time and is rampant now in the postmodern time is entitlement. This idea that I'm entitled to what I want for my life. <clears throat> Rob Vitaro, who's a pastor, wrote this. Postmodernism declares that the individual has the moral right to decide what is right for them. It is a self-focused view of the world. In other words, contemporary culture tells us that we need to pursue what is best for us. We, we, we need to, what's going to make me happy? What, what's going to make me feel fulfilled? Where do I want to go? 
Everything is inward focused on the individual and your particular individual life experience. He goes on to say, actually, this means that one can even change his or her standard of truth to suit their current situation. Because there is no absolute truth. Truth, according to the modern contemporary culture, is something that is in constant evolution. And so what was true for you at one time may not be true for you at another time, depending on your circumstances. Now think of how that impacts marriage. Well, when I married her, I really loved her. She was like amazing. You couldn't believe what she was like. She made me feel so important. And she just fulfilled me in such a way that was amazing. But she doesn't do that anymore. He was a knight in shining armor. He, he, was, he was so kind and so thoughtful and so generous and so gracious. And he made me laugh all the time. I don't remember the last time I laughed. Yeah, that was okay for me at that time of life because I was young and I was impressionable and, and I wanted the American dream and I wanted a family and I, I wanted kids and a dog and a cat and I wanted a house and I wanted all of that. But you know what? There comes a lot of responsibility with that and that's getting in my way now. How many times we pastors have had people come into our office and say, I'm going to get a divorce. And here's the logic. God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy in my marriage. God wants me to get a divorce. Now we laugh, but I'm telling you, I am dead serious. You see the impact of culture on attitude and how it devastates the institution of marriage. Now the other cultural factor is opportunity. Attitude is one. The whole attitude about relationship and about marriage, and about where it goes, and how it, everything changed. The other thing was opportunity. Now, again, not to pick on ladies, but going back to the women's rights movement. Remember, I said a lot of things were valid in their agenda. Such things like women were not paid an equal salary for equal work. Women were very limited in job promotional opportunities, even if they had the same skills or better skills and better education than a man did. There was inequality that needed to be addressed. But the problem is you mix the attitude that formed with the opportunity that formed, and it created a monster. Kirby Anderson from Probe Ministries, the rise in divorce closely parallels the increase in the number of women working. Now, is there anything wrong with women working? No. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 31 that describes the perfect virtuous woman, she works outside the home. In fact, it suggests that she's an entrepreneur. Nothing wrong with working. But look what happens. Armed with a measure of economic power, many women had less incentive to stay in a marriage and work out their differences with their husbands. A study of mature woman done at Ohio State University found that the higher a woman's income in relation to the total income of the family, the more likely she was to seek a divorce. See, what happened is... A good thing happened in that women began to get paid in equity with doing the same job as men. That's a good thing. That's the right thing. And women began to have more promotional opportunities. That's a good thing. That's a right thing. But when you mix the attitude that was accompanying that movement, then what happens is women feel empowered to leave their husbands. I don't need you anymore. I make more money than you do. What do I need you for? 
You're getting in my way. I'm not happy with you anymore. I deserve better than what I have. You see how it works? You see how the thinking and the opportunity come together? Attitude and opportunity of contemporary culture has produced this, that today 66% of all divorces are initiated by women. And let me tell you, this is 180 degrees out of just 30 years ago. I've been in ministry now for 35 plus years. In my early ministry, the experience that I would have is a wife would come into my office weeping and crying her eyes out and sharing with me that her husband was leaving her. He had found somebody else, somebody younger, somebody more attractive, or he just didn't want the responsibility anymore of of all the bills and all the pressures of the kids and her and everything, and he just had it, and he was done with it, and he was leaving. Fast forward to the last 10 years. I can't remember the last time I had a woman, a wife in my office, advising me that her husband was leaving her. But I could tell you case after case after case of men crying their eyes out in my office because their wives have left them. It is the trend today. It is the statistic today. 66% of all divorces are initiated by women because of this sense of empowerment financially. Another opportunity that culture has introduced into our relationships that have given people even more freedom to get out of their relationships is no-fault divorce. California is noted for no-fault divorce, 1969, evoking the first state law, but actually the first state law was in Oklahoma in 1953. California just got the notoriety for it. And after California did it, states began to follow suit like crazy. Look at this advertisement for no-fault divorce. File for uncontested divorce for couples without children. New version, five-point run, one. Now easier than ever, just $49.95. Save money, do it yourself, no attorney required. Over 65,000 satisfied customers since 2002. You can go down to Office Max. You can go down to, to the office store and just get the software and do it yourself. You can get out of your divorce, just forty nine ninety five. Kirby Anderson again. Historically, the laws governing marriage were based on the traditional Judeo-Christian belief that marriage was for life. Thus, the desire for divorce was not held to be self-justifying. Legally, the grounds for divorce had to be circumstances that justified making an exemption to the assumption of marital permanence. The spouse seeking a divorce had to prove that the other spouse had committed one of the faults recognized as justifying the disillusion of the marriage. Here's how it used to be just 30 years ago. That when a couple were even contemplating divorce, they had to go before a magistrate. And the magistrate would hear the issue. And the filing spouse had to be able to prove to the magistrate that there was substantial extenuating reasons why he should grant the disillusionment of that marriage. And almost always, and I remember it happening all the time. Before that would happen, the judge would court order the couple into marriage counseling. And they would have to go through marriage counseling. And then at the end of that prescribed period of counseling, the couple would come back, the counselor would come back, would give the the results to the judge, and the judge would then decide whether or not to grant the petition for divorce. 
today, $49.95. Today, even if one spouse in the relationship desperately wants to try to keep the relationship going, all the other spouse has to do is go down and file, and there's nothing they can do about it. There is no recourse, and all they have to do is put on the application irreconcilable differences, and that includes any and everything imaginable. Culture has made it very easy to get out of our marriages. And understand that there is no perfect marriage. We all struggle, and we all have to work through things. But today, it's so easy. And the attitude says of culture today says, why are you staying with that guy? Why are you staying with her? And our friends are saying, what, are you crazy? Get out. I'll go down and buy the software for you. With these factors, is it any wonder that marriage has had a major collision with culture? Now, also postmodernism has ushered in a couple new wrinkles. One is cohabitation. At the turn of the 20th century to the 21st century, from the 1900s to the 2000s, the divorce statistics were actually going down. Less people were getting divorced. Sociologists and, and clergy were getting really excited about that, only to discover that when probed deeper, divorce wasn't really going down. People just weren't getting married anymore. They were just living together instead. Now, I'm going to talk a lot more about that next week. But that has significantly played into this whole idea of God's institution for marriage. Another one that's on the front lines today is same-sex marriage. Now, culture is redefining what marriage is or desires to redefine what marriage is. Remember, Christians today in postmodernism are expected to be tolerant of contradicting viewpoints of life. And we're supposed to look the other way if someone is engaging in something that we don't prefer. See, the idea of absolute truth and the idea that God has made eternal pronouncements against certain things is eliminated by postmodernism and total culture because there is no absolute truth. So you have no right to judge. In fact, that's one of their mantras. They'll claim that the Bible says, like in Matthew 7, 1, Jesus said, do not judge so you will not, you will not be judged. But the difference is what Jesus is saying is judging each other's character and judging each other's things, not if we are in violation of revealed Biblical principles. There's a difference. In fact, the Bible also says you can judge them by their fruit. Jesus answered this. He said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. See, God made it very clear what marriage is. Now, I don't believe we ought to hate homosexual people. I don't believe we ought to be antagonistic to them, everything. But listen, God has defined what marriage is, and may it never be changed. And may there be a remnant of people who will constantly remind culture that there are absolutes. And in this area, God has made it absolutely clear. Marriage has collided. Now, what does God have to say about marriage, quickly, as we conclude? 
Well, we've already seen what God said. It's not changed. God says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and, and become united to his wife, and the two become one. God says that marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. That is to last forever. That is his ideal. That's what he designed it to be, and he hasn't changed. We saw also that Jesus in Matthew 19 reinforced that in his day. Nothing changed. Now, again, those same Pharisees in Matthew 19:7 said, in response to Jesus embracing God's original design for marriage, they said, well, why then? Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of voice of divorce and send her away? So, well, if what you're saying is true, Jesus, and God established relationships to be permanent, then why did Moses, who is our greatest leader of all leaders, why did he command people to give their wives a right of divorce and send them away? Now, Jesus immediately comes back and corrects their theology. And Jesus says in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, but it was not that way from the beginning. That's not how God designed it. Now, what, was, what has happened is because sin has entered into the world, and because man's heart has grown hard towards God, and because man's heart has grown hard towards each other in relationships, God has allowed to protect the victim some provisions. The one that most people readily identify with is unfaithfulness. In the same passage, Jesus goes on to say, Matthew 19, 9, I tell you that if anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, he commits adultery. So one of the exceptions is marriage unfaithfulness, adultery, cheating on your spouse. Now understand, God's Provision doesn't change, even in that situation. God would still say, I want you to work it out. And, and know that there are thousands and thousands of couples who have experienced this life event who have worked it out. But God also knows that sometimes that sting of that betrayal, the pain of that rejection, is so deep or the offenses have been so chronic that a man, a woman, cannot emotionally get past it ever again. And so to protect, protect the victim from continued, sustained emotional pain, and because of the hardness of hearts of people who don't want to change, God made provision. Now, another provision is abandonment. Look what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth, that was rampant with divorce. He says, if any brother who has a wife is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. In other words, what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, he's saying this. He's saying, listen, a lot of you were both unbelievers, and one of you came to faith in your marriage. You have previously been married to a pagan, to an unbeliever, somebody who has never embraced Christ as the Messiah. And so now it's changed because now one of you is a believer. He says, now, again, going back to God's original plan, 
He says, if that unbelieving spouse is willing to stay with you, then stay with them. Don't divorce them. Why? Because sometimes an unbelieving husband has come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the transformation he's seen in his wife. And sometimes an unbelieving wife has come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the transformation she's seen in her husband. So God says, just because now you've changed and they don't like your religion, they may resist it a little bit and all that kind of thing, don't divorce them. However, he goes on to say, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. In other words, if that unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, abandons the relationship, says, I don't love you anymore, I can't take this religious side of you, I don't like what you've become, I'm out of here, then under those circumstances, God has given provision. That that man, that woman, who is the victim of that response, is not bound. Now, Paul introduces that idea by saying this. To the rest, I say this. Previous to this, Paul is speaking to single believers at Corinth. We're going to talk to single people next week. But then, after speaking to single people, he says to the rest. So he's talking about to the married people now. And look what he says. He says, I say this, I not the Lord. So the provision of abandonment that we saw was Paul's leading, and we believe through the inspiration of God, because all scripture is inspired by God, to make yet another provision because of the change in the hardness of heart of men to also include abandonment. Now, with that thought in mind, and with extreme caution, and with absolute humility before the Lord, I'm going to give you a little tokarology. This is tokarology. This is my opinion. And you should weigh my opinion against what the Holy Spirit says to you as you pray and seek God's direction in your life. But I don't think it's inconsistent with Scripture to include under the abandonment this whole issue of no-fault divorce. When there's nothing you can do about it. When you're willing to do everything and anything you can do to preserve the relationship and legally culture has made it impossible for you to do anything else, then I believe that falls under the abandonment provision, not to jump into another relationship. I talked to a man after the, after the first service, and he was telling me about his circumstances. And he says, we got a divorce, and it was ugly and everything else, but I'm, I'm praying every day to God that somehow we'll come back together sometime. See, that's, he's still embracing God's ideal. I believe that possibly chronic, 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 chronic physical abuse, chronic, 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 chronic emotional abuse could fall under the abandonment provision in the Bible. Marriage is so sacred to God that he hates divorce. God passionately desires every married couple to experience the absolute soul-satisfying experience of marriage as he created it to be. What's gone wrong? How come marriage isn't what God designed it to be? I believe that's because we believers, we Christian married couples have lost our way. We have failed to 
embrace God's guidelines for how to make our relationships successful. And he's been pretty succinct in it. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, and again in verse 33, the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, one of the reasons that there's so much turmoil now, even in the lives of Christian couples, is because, husbands, we have stopped loving our wives in a sacrificial manner. We have bought into the prevailing culture about I'm not happy and she's not meeting my needs. And we have lost this whole idea that our responsibility in the relationship, and we hold the greatest responsibility, men. By the way, we are the ones who God is going to judge more strictly than the women. We have failed to love our wives in such a way that they feel loved. So I, I gave her a card at Christmas. I sent her a box of stale candy at Valentine's Day. Or the old joke is, I told her when we got married I loved her and nothing's changed. See, women don't feel loved. And women were created with a tremendous need to feel loved, to feel protected, to be led, not to be the leader, but to be the follower of a loving husband who they know and are absolutely convinced is totally all in with making her life what God has intended her life to be. And and ladies... I think so many Christian wives have lost their way in fulfilling their biblical guideline of respecting their husbands. Ladies, listen to me very carefully. It is more important to your husband to be respected by you than to be loved by you. Let me tell you something about we burly hairy guys. We like to project an image of self-confidence and masculinity and macho. But the truth of the matter is, inside, most of us are insecure. And most of us desperately crave reaffirmation. The kind of affirmation that you gave us when we were dating you. When you would say things like, I just love it when you and you are so, you're amazing, and, 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 and you can do anything, and you, you can do that, and everything was affirmative. But because we have ceased to love you in a way that makes you feel love, you're unfulfilled, and that has turned from affirmation to criticism and condemnation in a condescending relationship. See, we've got to return. And I don't have time in this message, and you're hungry and you want to go home, (laughs) to tell you how to fix it right now. But we're going to help you fix it. In the future, we're going to put some resources online on our website site this week. You can go there at... Tuesday morning, and they'll be there, some books that you can get and some resources that you can use to start healing your marriage if it's broken. Has your marriage collided with culture? 
Have you considered going down to the Office Max and getting some of that software for you? Have you been thumbing through the phone book looking at those divorce lawyers? Has your attitude towards marriage changed? Are you looking increasingly at the opportunity that culture affords you to get out of your relationship? All symptoms that you're looking more towards the secular worldview than you are the biblical worldview. Our contemporary culture has given you every incentive to get out of your marriage. But stay in it. Stay in it because longevity in marriage has tremendous dividends. Culture is against you. But God can empower you to have a healthy, satisfying, kingdom-honoring marriage.